Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The day after John had baptized Jesus, John saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following. He said to to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. From today's gospel lesson, he said to them, come and see. In the late 16th century, a very educated, learned man became fascinated with, really obsessed with, the idea of determining what things in the world can be absolutely proven as true. And so he he began a systematic inquiry, a systematic investigation, if you will. The first thing he decided is this, that I can't rely on the reports of others. I don't know what investigation they've done. I don't know what mistakes they may have made because we all make mistakes. Quite frankly, some people do tell misrepresentations. So he determined he could only rely on the results of his own inquiry, his own investigations. And then as he pondered more, he realized that in order to to validate his investigations, they had to be uh, they had to be affirmed and confirmed by use of his senses, sight, smell, taste, and so forth. That seemed good for a while, but then he realized that he really couldn't rely on his senses. 
For example, what if he saw an object that looked like a tree and he went and touched it and it felt like a tree? He couldn't actually be certain it was a tree. What if it was an hallucination? Because he had seen such people have hallucinations like that. Then he began to question his very thoughts. You see where this is headed? He, he first said, I don't know if I can trust all of my thoughts. For example, I have thoughts in my dreams, and those certainly can't be trusted. And then he descended seemingly even lower towards madness when he said, in fact, how can I be certain when I'm dreaming and when I'm sleeping? Maybe I'm actually sleeping when I think I'm awake and vice versa. As I said, this seems like a descent into madness, but finally he arrived at a conclusion The one conclusion he felt like he could state to the world was an absolute certainty of proof. And so he announced to the world, cogito ergo sum. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. This was Rene Descartes, the famous French philosopher, and ultimately he decided that while he couldn't trust his thoughts to be true, the very fact that he had thoughts at all was absolute proof that at least he existed. Now, Descartes lived at the beginning of of the period of enlightenment, this period that spanned really the 17th century and on into the 18th century. And this, this enlightenment was a watershed moment in history in terms of thought and analysis. For the first time, people, uh, philosophers like Descartes and others began to question orthodox thinking. You see, in the past, the, what, what elders in various communities said was true was simply taken for granted as being true. But now folks began to ask questions such as, why is that the case? How do I know that is true? In other words, with the Enlightenment, we had the rise of skepticism. Now, this Enlightenment thinking, this skeptical attitude, proved greatly beneficial in many respects. For example, it was the impetus about behind a, a whole lot of research and a whole lot of discovery and inventions. It was the attitude that allowed people to begin to question and hold accountable public officials. So as I say, there were great benefits to an enlightenment attitude. There was also a shadow side. You see, this shadow side began to filter into faith so that people began to question the orthodoxy of their faith. People began to question, for example, the divinity of Christ. Many of these enlightenment thinkers Well, they questioned and they rejected Christ. They rejected Christianity on the basis that you couldn't prove that Jesus was divine. Now, that's several centuries in the past. But you and I are very much children of the Enlightenment. Think about it for a minute. How often do you hear somebody make a statement or you read something And you respond with this question. Why is that true? How do I know that is true? Many of us are like one of my favorite characters in all of TV, 
Sergeant Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. We all want to know the facts that are being that are proven so that we can reach our own conclusions. And as I say, there is a lot of good about this, but it also seeps into our own faith experience, doesn't it? So often it seems like we, and I know this is the case with me, fall into the trap of, of looking at faith as an intellectual exercise. Now think of the contradiction, the internal contradiction in that statement. Faith as an internal, excuse me, as an intellectual exercise. And yet I find myself falling into that trap often. I think Jesus is getting to this today when he says to these soon-to-be disciples, come and see. I think he is talking about the importance of experiencing the presence of God. Now, I get there because I have an enlightened mind, right? And so what did I do? I did some study. I went and looked at that phrase, and I looked at the Greek behind it. This word that is translated as see is horato, excuse me, horao. Horao doesn't really mean to see with our eyes. It's much more nuanced than that. It means to perceive, or better yet, it means to experience. Jesus, in answer to the question put by these two new disciples, said, come and experience what I have to offer. Now, to help me kind of explain what I'm talking about in terms of this uh, differentiation between a reasoned approach, because that's the, that's, the, that's the enlightenment approach. What can our reason tell us? And experience, on the other hand, let me give you an analogy. About 25 years ago, Darla and I took our two children, Woodson and Morgan, to Disney World for our first family vacation at Disney World. It was a great time. We were there, I think, six days, and we had a blast. I remember we were putting the kids to bed on the third or fourth day, and I looked at Darla, and I said, you realize that all four of us have never stopped smiling the entire time we were here? And that was true for the entirety of our Disney World experience until I got home and I got the bill. <laughs> but that's okay. It was absolutely worth it. Now, one of the great memories of that trip is a roller coaster ride. It's tucked away in, the, in a corner of the uh, Hollywood Studios theme park. The name of this ride is the Rock and Roller Coaster. Probably some of you have ridden it. To tell you the truth, this roller coaster, in most respects, is really no different than any other roller coaster ride, but there's one exception. There's one thing about this ride that stands out about any other ride I've ever been involved in, and it's the very beginning, just the first couple of seconds. You start off just sitting still, and in a matter of what's about two seconds, you go to what feels like 200 miles an hour. It has got to be the feeling that you get if you're on a, a fighter jet being catapulted off of an aircraft carrier. It is exhilarating. So much so that once we discovered it, 
We went back and read it, wrote it two or three times, and then we wrote it every day thereafter two or three times. We loved it. And that's cool. So you get some sense of it, don't you? And I can explain it to you. And I could go further if I wanted to. I could, I could do some study on the, the physics and the biometrics of the experience and tell you about that. But you know what? At the end of a conversation about the rock and roller coaster, I'd have to just conclude by saying, you know, you really, you really just need to go to Disney World and experience it. There's no substitute for that. Now, don't get me wrong. In terms of our spiritual experience, our spiritual journey, theological study is very important. Theological discussions among ourselves, theological debates, all of that is vital. It's important to our spiritual journeys, but that can take us only so far. At some point, we just need to experience being in God's presence. Now, we can experience God in different ways, in different settings. One obvious setting is right here in terms of of corporate worship, as long as we open ourselves to feel the presence of God. There are other settings we can do it. We can do it by reading Scripture and allowing the words to soak into us. Hearing God, feeling God speak to us. We can do it in quiet meditation. And of course, we can do it anytime, any place, under any circumstances, through prayer. The point is, being in God's presence and feeling it is something that cannot be duplicated through study or discussion. Many of you know, I think by now, that one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Philippians 4. And I think St. Paul was getting at exactly what I'm talking about when he wrote these words. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, The peace of God. Remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The shalom of God, which surpasses all understanding. You cannot explain it. You can only experience it. But my friends, it is there waiting for us to be experienced. All we have to do is open ourselves up to the presence of God. In the final analysis, God is not an intellectual construct. God is the Holy One, the Immortal One, who wants to share God's unfathomable love with us. So join me. Let's place ourselves in the presence of God and feel that love. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, Amen.